The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here are your top five at five. Stocks fighting to bounce back as the return of rising bond yields, they once again kind of spook investors. And the potential threat of another breach on Capitol Hill. That's hanging over Washington this morning as the Senate looks to push forward on President Biden's virus relief bill. We are live in D.C. with the very latest. And a February to remember for Melvin Capital, logging solid gains for the month after getting clobbered over its role in the GameStop short squeeze frenzy. And are you ready for some football, at least more football on Amazon? The tech giant looking to lock up a major deal with the league for more of its games and a new contender in the streaming wars. As Viacom CBS, it officially rolls out Paramount+. Plus. It is Thursday, March 4th, 2021, and you are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And good morning. I am Frank Holland in for Brian Sullivan this morning. Let's take a look at how your money and the global markets are setting up their day. Stock futures right now pretty much flat across the board, fractionally lower. Actually, excuse me, a reversal we're seeing. The Dow up in the green now. Just a few seconds ago, everything was fractionally lower. Now just the Nasdaq composite fractionally lower in futures this morning. Now, this after stocks once again suffered steep losses on rising bond yield fears. The Dow yesterday shedding 119 points, while the S&P fell 1.3 percent, and the Nasdaq plunged nearly 3 percent amid that big rotation out of tech. The Nasdaq is on track to post its third straight negative week. That's the longest weekly losing streak since September. The S&P holding on to a fractional gain for the week. That weakness in stocks coming as the 10-year Treasury yield, it continues to extend gains right now sitting just below 1.47. You've got to remember those bond yields, they've risen 50 basis points since the beginning of the year. Also, we want to get a look at the price of oil right now. WTI holding just above $60 a barrel this morning. Something to watch. We're going to have much more on the energy market coming up later in the hour. Now, let's go worldwide. Our Matt Taylor is standing by in Singapore. Jumana Bersetchi, she's live in our London newsroom. Matt, let's kick it off with you. Hi there, Frank. It was a sharply weaker session for Asian markets. Interesting, because you're talking about the turnaround on U.S. futures. For most of the Asian trading day, we had futures trading down by between uh, 100 to 200 points for the Dow. And that really pressured the Asian markets, as did that big sell down uh, that we saw in the Nasdaq for you guys yesterday. A number of the tech heavy markets across the Asia Pacific are really seeing tech stocks weighing down those indices. Uh, To some of the closing numbers, uh, the Japanese market was down by about 2%. Some of those tech heavy markets like Taiwan, off by about 1.8%. South Korea fared okay, 
only down by about 1% at the close. Uh, but it was really the greater China markets that uh, fared the worst in trade today here in Asia, uh, in particular in Hong Kong, where a number of those Chinese-listed uh, tech stocks uh, are, of course, listed. And we saw uh, the Hang Seng Tech Index uh, trading down by around about 5% throughout the course of the trading session. Uh, Hong Kong down by 2% at the close. Shanghai also weaker by about 2% at the close as well as we await more news out of the National People's Congress, uh, which well and truly gets underway uh, tomorrow for clues on policy settings in China. Finally, some of the tech names around the region. Sony down 2.5%, Samsung uh, 2%. Tencent, though, one of those Hong Kong-listed Chinese tech names off 4.5%. Frank, back to you. Thank you very much. Now turning to the early trade in Europe. Let's go to Germana Bersetti in our London newsroom. Good morning, Germana. Okay. Morning, Frank. Well, the picture isn't that much different for European equities as well. Taking their cue from Asian markets and U.S. markets overnight, a lot of red on the board right behind me. But let's break it down by individual country. FTSE 100 is the U.K. index, and we are underperforming massively today, down about nine-tenths of a percentage point. A lot of dispersion, though, in that index. Right at the bottom, we've got some of the basic resources stocks, the miners, such as Rio Tinto and Glencore. Many of them have gone ex-dividend, which explains some of the underperformance today. But right at the top, we've got a lot of the hospitality names. Remember, yesterday, the Chancellor delivered the UK budget, providing a lot more COVID relief support to the hospitality and retail sectors. So those names are actually performing quite well, though you wouldn't be able to see that given the overall index performance. Cacahont in France, also down about two-tenths of a percentage point. One name we're watching very closely there is Vivendi. Remember, they're looking to sell the Universal Group in the next couple of months. So that is one of the reasons why that stock is coming under pressure today, down about four percentage points. Zetradax in Germany, also down about four-tenths of a percentage point. One name we're watching very closely there is Lufthansa. They released their results today. Airline industry coming under, again, a lot of pressure. The outlook not looking good. And also one of the reasons why travel and leisure in general in Europe is trading on the back foot today. Frank. Jumana, thank you very much. We appreciate that look at Europe. Now to your morning's other top stories. Flipkart, a company owned by Walmart, is reportedly looking to go public here in the U.S. through a SPAC deal. The India-based retailer has been considering an IPO. Bloomberg reports the company could seek a valuation of at least $35 billion in a SPAC transaction. Walt Disney has announced it will close 20 percent of its brick-and-mortar store locations across North America before the end of this year. That works out to at least 60 of its stores. The company is saying the move is part of a bigger focus on its e-commerce business as consumer trends continue to shift. And the CEO of the Texas electric grid operator has been fired less than a month after the state's power grid experienced widespread blackouts during a major winter storm. The Board of Electric Reliability Council of Texas ousting Bill Magnus, who has served as CEO and president since 2016. However, he will continue to serve in his roles for two more months before exiting. Meanwhile, power retailer Entrust Energy has reportedly become the second electric seller to be barred from the Texas power market. This is according to Bloomberg. ERCOT made that move after finding Entrust was short more than $234 million in payments to generators and others during the state's energy crisis. Now turning our attention to Washington as officials brace for the threat of a new attempt to attack lawmakers on Capitol Hill. This is lawmakers continue to try and finalize the terms of President Biden's $1.9 trillion COVID aid package. Tracy Potts is live in Washington with more. Good morning, Tracy. What's the environment like in the Capitol this morning? 
Well, certainly tense uh, because the Senate is working. They are going to work on that bill uh, for COVID relief. But House members went home after a late night trying to scramble and get some work done amid this new intelligence threat that Trump supporters and extremists could be headed back to Washington. The bill is passed. The House of Representatives scrambling overnight to approve a voting rights bill and the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. We cannot accept this epidemic of injustice. Both votes were scheduled for today, but the House rushed them through after the FBI and Homeland Security warned of extremist threats to attack the U.S. Capitol again today and remove Democrats. Conspiracy theorists believe Donald Trump will return to power today. Inauguration used to be held on March 4th. The Capitol complex is still under heavy security in place since the January 6th riot. 6,000 National Guard troops remain in D.C. That mission continues um, uh, under its current form until uh, the 12th of March. The House shutting down early to be safe. Threats to lawmakers are up over 90% this year. People are deeply concerned about what uh, potential threats could be out there. But the Senate is working today. Debate on the American Rescue Plan could be delayed 10 hours. One lawmaker will force the clerk to read the entire 700 page bill first. It's not about delaying things, it's about educating the public in terms of what this bill is and what this bill isn't. President Biden has agreed to limit direct payments to Americans earning $80,000 or less and couples earning twice that. So 20 hours of debate on that relief bill, the, the stimulus checks and everything else will get underway after that full bill is read, which means, Frank, it could push a vote into this weekend. So, Tracy, yesterday we saw the head of the D.C. National Guard testify on Capitol Hill. What are security officials now saying about that January 6th Capitol Hill riot? So we heard from the head of the National Guard, the National Guard commander, saying that immediately after the rioting, they requested troops, but that it took three hours for the Pentagon to respond in another 40 minutes to actually get that message. Uh, Pentagon officials saying uh, that they worked quickly, but uh, that they were a little gun shy because of what happened the prior summer and, and them getting criticism for getting involved in demonstrations at the White House. Yeah, certainly an ongoing investigation. Tracy Potts in D.C. with the very latest. Thank you very much. All right. When we come back, Las Vegas Sands ditching the strip. We'll go live to Beijing for a deeper look at the company's big bet on Asia. Plus, the morning stock to watch, stocks to watch, including shares of Vroom, plunging in the pre-market, and RBC Capital's Halima Croft. She's going to lay out what today's meeting by OPEC Plus could mean for rebounding oil prices. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number 
and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. And welcome back. Investors are bracing for the weekly jobless claims numbers out later this morning. They come after yesterday's really disappointing February ADP report with a big monthly jobs report set for release tomorrow. For more on the state of the economy and the potential impact on markets, I'm joined by Jay Bryson, Wells Fargo Securities Managing Director and Chief Economist. Jay, thanks for being here. Hey, Frank. So we got to talk about bond yields first. We're going to get to those jobless numbers in just a second. But markets are really focused on inflation. We just mentioned a little while ago that bond yields, they've increased 50 basis points since the start of the year. How do you think this impacts not only equities, but inflation in general? Well, you start with equities. I mean, if bond yields continue to rise, if they you know, were to shoot significantly higher, then you know, the, the, uh, higher yields in bonds mean people probably rotate out of the stocks, and that could, that could definitely hit the, uh, hit, hit the stock market. I mean, in terms of the economy, it, it, the, the question is, why are, why are yields going up here? If it's because people are getting more excited about stronger growth in the end of the year, that's not a bad thing. Uh, I mean, if you think back into, quote, normal times, say back before the great you know, the financial crisis, you know, 10-year Treasury was generally around 5% or so, and that didn't slow down the economy all that much. So if it's a real scare just about inflation and people are building in risk premium, then that's a bad thing. But if it's really more about expectations of stronger growth going forward, then that's generally not that bad of a deal. You know, Jay, speaking of expectations, what are you expecting from the jobs numbers out later today? And if those numbers, they beat estimates, what do you think that means for price inflation and the markets? Right. So the initial jobless claims, you know, they're, they're running just a little bit under 800,000 per week right now. It's probably going to stay somewhere around that. Uh, you know, I think the more important number is, is the, um, uh, the employment port to, to report tomorrow. And we're expecting 210,000 uh, jobs were created in the month of February. Now, you know, in normal times, that's a pretty good number. Um, you know, given where we are right now, you would expect and hope to see some higher sorts of numbers. You know, I think the key here um, is if it comes in a lot stronger than expectations, and particularly if the unemployment rate were to come down and and the the measure of average hourly earnings, if that ticks up, then people may get a little bit concerned about some higher inflation. If it comes in lower than that, then you could potentially see bonds rally um, on the back of that. And I would think that's probably, you know, pretty good for the stock market. So you're saying if the number comes in lower and bonds rally, that's actually good for the markets? I would think so. Right. Because, you know, I think what's what's happening right now is you know, with yields, what we've seen over the last you know, few weeks or so is as yields continue to rise when they shoot higher, that gets the, the stock market a little bit un, unhinged. And so, you know, if, if, you, if you get the sign of, OK, so the, the, the economy continues to grow, but not so fast that it's going to kick off inflation. That's kind of almost a Goldilocks sort of scenario, you know, good growth, but low inflation. And that, that should be good for stocks. All right. Speaking of things that aren't too high, aren't too low, potentially, let's talk about your GDP forecast. Your forecast for this year and next year is 6.2 percent and 5.1 percent, respectively. How much is that directly tied to the vaccine rollout not only being successful, but people then going out and spending money in Q2? 
Yeah, so so Frank, I mean, it's it's very much tied to that as um, as well. Um, if the vaccine rollout continues to go successfully here, more and more people become vaccinated and feel comfortable about going out, then we think there's just a pent up demand for lots of spending on restaurants and travel and movie theaters and things of that nature. Plus all the money that people have received through these fiscal relief sorts of programs. Those two combinations, pent up demand and a lot of uh, firepower uh, should be good for spending. However, you know, if the vaccine rollout were to trip up here, or if you know some big variant were to come along that made uh, vaccines uh, uh, not successful against that, then that potentially could uh, cause us to re revamp back our, our forecast. So it really depends on how things progress here uh, with, with the vaccine rollout and as well as the, as the virus. Well, Jay, I think we all hope and pray that you're right and we're going to see a widespread vaccine rollout and people back out and about in Q2. Jay Bryson, we appreciate your insight. Have a great day. All Thank right, you. still on deck here on Worldwide Exchange. Chipotle setting some new parameters for its executives to get paid. Details on the key metrics they'll have to, to hit to get compensation. Today's big number. 78%. That's how many institutional investors surveyed by JP Morgan say they are not planning on investing in cryptocurrencies, though the majority believe cryptocurrencies are here to stay. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. All right, welcome back. Let's get a check on some of the stocks on the move this morning. Snowflake reporting better than expected fourth quarter revenue, but the cloud software maker offering a slightly weak sales outlook for this year. Snowflake went public last September, raising nearly $4 billion. The largest software company IPO in 2020 shares fractionally higher this morning. However, shares of Okta, they're lower, taking a big dip down about 10 percent. The company, which helps customers manage and secure user IDs, reporting adjusted fourth quarter results that actually beat estimates. But it sees a wider loss in the first quarter and for the year than analysts expect. Okta also announcing it's buying identity platform company Auth0 for $6.5 billion. Investors, they are hitting the brakes on room today. Shares of the online used car dealer dropping big, down about 13 percent after reporting a wider adjusted fourth quarter loss, although revenue rose 14 percent, beating forecasts. The stock is still up about 70 percent since its IPO last June. Now switching gears, Las Vegas Sands and its decision to ditch its namesake city for Asia, the gaming giant selling its two Nevada properties in a more than $6 billion deal, the gaming giant will now make a bigger bet on Asia with a focus on Macau and Singapore. Our Eunice Yoon is in Beijing with much more. And Eunice, I don't know if you're a gambler, but if you play blackjack, this would be considered like a double down on Asia. 
Yeah, the company is going all in on Asia. Uh, the uh, vast majority of the sands properties are in the Chinese territory of Macau, with the Marina Bay Sands in Singapore, and also it happens to be the most profitable uh, during the pandemic. So the pandemic uh, was managed pretty well out here in Singapore and in Macau, and so uh, they've been able to ease restrictions on travelers to the casinos. In fact, just this week, Macau lifted requirements to show negative test results for COVID at the properties, and also the territory saw gambling revenue spike in February by 136%, though, of course, this is coming off a, a low base. Now, longer term, the company is betting on what the late Sheldon Adelson, of course, the founder of the Sands, envisioned when he first came out here uh, back in the early 2000s. Uh, the company was one of the first to grab a license out in Macau, and uh, um, he believed that people out here would be getting wealthier and wealthier and would want to travel and shop and, and be entertained more. So um, Adelson um, has often been credited with uh, transforming the um, um, tra transforming Macau from uh, sleepy backwaters into the gaming capital of the region. And a lot of investors have been asking what the company would do now uh, with the uh, money from the sales. So uh, Sanford Bernstein uh, pointed out, Frank, that injecting the sales proceeds into the expansion of the Marina Bay Sands or the Sands China might not be necessary. And people out here have been speculating that uh, the Sands might look to grab a license in Japan or possibly invest in Australia uh, with a bid for Crown Resorts. So Eunice, what are some of the big challenges with this big move by Sands? Well, um, some of the big challenges uh, for the Sands, I mean, probably the most immediate one is going to be the fact that the pandemic still hasn't been totally managed. So uh, they're going to see their numbers go up and down depending on exactly uh, how the outbreak goes and uh, whether or not the government's out here are able to manage it. Now, um, longer term, though, what people have been eyeing, especially in Macau, is uh, the fact that the licenses are going to expire in June of 2022. So uh, there's been a lot of questions um, as to whether or not the Sands would be able to maintain um, its license in Macau, or if it would eventually mean that um, it could um, um, work with a Chinese company, for example, in order to try to stay in the good graces of the Chinese government, especially now that Sheldon Adelson, who was seen as such a huge player and obviously and, and visionary, um, won't be around to negotiate any sort of deal. All right, Eunice Yoon with the very latest out of Beijing. We appreciate it. All right, let's get a check on this morning's other headlines back here in the U.S. NBC's Philip Mena is live in New York with the very latest. Good morning, Philip. What's going on? Hey, Frank. Good morning. Good to see you. Well, overnight, the House passed one of the most significant democracy reform bills since the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The Voting and Ethics Bill, also known as H.R. 1, passed with a 220 to 210 vote. And some of the measures include expanded early and mail-in voting, reducing some restrictive voter ID laws and restoring rights to felons. And that is setting the stage for an explosive battle in the Senate, where it will likely face Republican opposition. Embattled New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is refusing to resign over allegations of sexual harassment by three women. During a news conference on Wednesday, the governor apologized for, quote, making people feel uncomfortable, but he also denied touching anyone inappropriately. And finally, Pittsburgh Steelers wide receiver Juju Smith-Schuster found a very unique strength workout in the offseason, tug of war with a lion. 
Smith-Schuster battled that 425-pound female lion for a bit, but ultimately the animal proved to be too much for the Pro Bowl wide receiver, and eventually he gave up. But Frank, an excellent core workout nonetheless. Really? I mean, Philip, anybody could do that with the fence up. I could do that. I'd be impressed if you took the fence down. <laughs> oh, is that right? So you, you see, right. No big deal that way. But I'll tell you what, if, if, uh, if they had that same sort of tenacity in Detroit, you know, it would have been a completely different setup for a completely different career for Barry Sanders, you know, Calvin Johnson and the like over there. If they had anywhere near what that lion had. <laughs> I used to live in Detroit. I think a lot of people up there wish the exact same thing, Philip. We appreciate it, man. Have a good All day. All right. Have a good one. All right, still on deck here on Worldwide Exchange, a growing number of major corporations just bypassing the Texas governor's decision to drop COVID restrictions. Details on who's telling customers they need to keep on wearing their face coverings. And if you haven't subscribed already, you really should. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, you can check us out on our podcast. It's on Apple, Spotify, and other podcast apps. We'll be right back. Good morning. Futures in the red right now, but don't blink. It's been a volatile week of trading so far. And what a difference a month makes. Melvin Capital reportedly posting a return of more than 20% in February, clawing back some big losses from its bet against GameStop. And Streaming Wars, another player jumping into the already crowded pool of content. It is March 4th, 2021, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. And welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland in for Big Papa, Brian Sullivan. And here's how your money and your investments look right now as we're halfway through the 5 a.m. hour. You gotta, I got to turn and look at the board. It's been a roller coaster ride so far this morning. And you see all the indexes in the red declining from earlier today. And this after stocks once again suffered steep losses on rising bond yield fears. Let's take a look at the 10-year treasury. We've been watching it all year long. Right now it's sitting at just below, uh, just above 1.47, you got to remember that bond yields, they've risen more than 50 basis points so far this year. Now turning to corporate news this morning, Amazon is reportedly nearing a media rights deal with the NFL that will let its prime video service carry many of the league's Thursday night games exclusively. The agreement will begin after the 2022 season. The Wall Street Journal also reports new agreements between the NFL and TV networks look to have those traditional media players paying as much as double their current rate. And Texas may be lifting its mask mandate, but a number of big companies say they will still require you to wear your face covering. Among them, Target, Starbucks, CVS, and Hyatt Hotels. Meantime, grocery chain Albertsons, gym operator Lifetime, and many restaurants say they will not require face coverings. And Chipotle says it will link executive compensation to hitting environmental and diversity goals. Starbucks and McDonald's, they've made similar announcements. This move comes as many investors have been focusing on ESG, environmental, social, and corporate governance, as they select stocks. Now, we got to turn back to it, the Reddit rebellion. Melvin Capital was one of the hedge funds really caught in that GameStop short squeeze back in January, but new numbers suggest things might actually be looking up for Gabe Plotnick's firm. Our Leslie Picker, she joins us now with the latest details. What's the latest, Leslie? 
Hey, Frank, that's right. There's no doubt it's been a rough 2021 for Melvin Capital, but the firm that's at the center of the GameStop saga is starting to really turn things around in February. We've learned from four sources familiar with the matter that Melvin posted returns of 21.7% in February. Those double-digit gains came after losses of 53% in January on some wrong-way short bets. Now, my sources were unwilling to disclose the specifics of what actually caused the turnaround in February, the firm declined to comment on performance, but Melvin has said previously it closed out its GameStop short position in January. That was initially what caught the ire of the Reddit crowd, put positions disclosed toward the end of 2020, making Melvin and its founder Gabe Plotkin a common enemy for the GameStop bulls. Afterward, Plotkin found himself ensnarled in that web of GameStop, uh, even appearing before Congress a few weeks ago as lawmakers sought to really unpack what led to the volatility in certain stocks. Now, Plotkin said at the time that he had been short GameStop since the firm was founded in 2014. Other than that name, it's unclear exactly how the firm is currently positioned and helped it really rebound in February. Its latest disclosure, though, showing positions from the end of December indicated that Melvin's largest long holdings included Expedia, Facebook and MasterCard. However, that filing noted that confidential information had actually been omitted and filed separately with the SEC. Managers can actually request this type of treatment if they believe it would impact their portfolio, Frank. Interesting here. It's a big turnaround from January to February, 20 percent, obviously a great gain. So have they changed their short squeeze strategy or their shorting strategy at all? So Bloomberg has reported that they have, that they've actually taken smaller positions, tried to really limit their risk exposure from a short standpoint. Uh, They obviously have thrown in the towel, at least as of January, on their GameStop position. It's unclear whether they have re-entered that position since January, since they uh, came on the record saying that they were, they have decided to close that position. Um, and then they've also kind of changed the way that they plan on disclosing things. This is also according to that Bloomberg story that they don't necessarily uh, want to be listing their various put positions or bearish options bets against companies like GameStop, which is how initially they became targeted amid this squeeze that took place in January. Yeah, ongoing story for sure. Great reporting as always, Leslie. We appreciate it. Have a good morning. All right, turning to now oil. The coalition of oil producing nations known as OPEC Plus meets virtually today to decide if they will or will not reverse some of the production cuts they made last year. The meeting comes as oil prices rise to pre-pandemic levels with U.S. production taking a big hit after winter storms and as the economy looks to pick back up. Joining us now is Halima Croft, Managing Director and Head of Global Commodity Strategy at RBC Capital Markets, also a CNBC contributor and a friend of the show. Hey, Halima, (laughs) how's it going? Good morning, Frank. All right, we got some drama today here in the oil market. So what are you expecting from this meeting of OPEC Plus and especially Saudi Arabia? And can you expect anything? Because that oil minister is, well, unpredictable. You call him the prince of plot twists. No, I mean, there's Royal Highness Prince Abdelaziz bin Salman. He loves a surprise ending to these monthly OPEC meetings. I mean, our expectation is that we will be seeing some OPEC plus barrels coming back, potentially in the 500,000 to 1 million barrel a day range. The big question is, though, how much of those barrels are going to be Saudi barrels? In January, Prince Abdelaziz surprised the market by doing this unilateral 1 million barrel a day Saudi cut. That was a big shot of adrenaline into the oil market. That cut is supposed to end at the end of this month. And the question is, 
Will he hold some of those barrels back? He has expressed concern about the potential fragility of the recovery. We think he's going to be very cautious in bringing barrels back onto the market. He was the person one year ago who wanted a deep cut because he was very, very concerned about the pandemic. He was thwarted by the Russians then. But his whole mantra is you need to be prudent when you look at this market. Interesting. So the Prince of Plot Twist leaving some surprises for later today. So we just we're just showing the oil prices, Halima, where Brent and WTI are sitting at both just above $60 a barrel. Um, How does the potential of U.S. shale drillers getting back online and U.S. production ramping back up after what we've been seeing in Texas? How does that impact the discussions at this meeting? Because according to your research, their collective break even is at $95 a barrel. Right. And within that collective break, even for OPEC members, I mean, you have countries on one end of the spectrum, like the United Arab Emirates, who can balance their budget in the 60s. And then producers like Venezuela and Iraq that need triple digits to balance their budgets. But they are very concerned about what is Shell going to do? Is Shell going to come out and essentially kill the party by basically ramping up production? Now, Shell CEOs have been very, very quick to say they're going to remain disciplined. But certain countries within the OPEC plus coalition, most notably the Russians, are very concerned about giving a lifeline to shale. Their oil minister, their deputy prime minister has been out essentially saying, if we don't put more barrels on the market, other producers will. We all think the Russians are really talking about U.S. shale producers. You know, back to the Prince of Plot Twist for just a second. I know he's kind of concerned about people actually shorting the oil market. So I talked to our quant team that is some great research. Shorts have declined a lot over the last year. Is that what he was going for when he kind of put up this uh, unpredictable stance out here to the public? Well, he's been really clear. He wants to basically eviscerate the shorts. He has said that in his press conferences. And I think this monthly meeting structure now keeps investors on their toes. OPEC used to meet you know, twice a year. There was more forward guides about production policy. He likes to make sure that we're always guessing and we can't take Saudi production for granted. Yeah, short sellers at the top of everybody's mind these days. Let's talk about another situation at the top of mind, Iran. Uh, right now, they're under U.S. sanctions. But if they were not, they'd have about one million barrels per day that they could put out. What's the probability of those barrels being released? And what would that do to this oil rally? You know, Frank, that's a great question. When President Biden was sworn in, a lot of people expected that the U.S. would go back into the 2015 landmark nuclear deal and essentially relax sanctions on Iran. Those talks look like they have stalled out for now. I mean, yes, their negotiations are ongoing, but it doesn't look like we're going to get a near-term breakthrough, which are going to bring those barrels back on the market in the next couple months. It's looking like those Iranian barrels may not be coming back till end of year or even 2022. So that takes some pressure, I would think, off the OPEC planners. They don't necessarily have to figure out how do you make room for the Iranian barrels. But it does interject unpredictability into the Middle East. We saw those strikes by Biden on those Syrian targets last week. There is a question mark about if we don't get a nuclear deal and Iran continues to make progress in their nuclear revamp up, are we going to see some type of, you know, more of these incidents in the Middle East? Will we see potentially the Israelis doing some strikes on Iranian facilities as well? Wow. Halima, a lot going on. Probably be a good show on one of those streaming services. We're talking about those later. Yes. Halima Croft, we appreciate it as always. Thank you very much. And Thank now, you for having me. Always great to have you. Also, a programming note. Don't miss ExxonMobil CEO Darren Woods on Squawk Box today at 8 a.m. Thank you. And then later today, Brian Sullivan leads two critical conversations for our CNBC Evolve live stream. 
He speaks to Occidental CEO Vicky Holub about how this legacy company is innovating for a more sustainable future. Plus, a must-see conversation with former Secretary of State and U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, John Kerry, who discusses President Biden's energy initiatives and the need for a smart grid. Here's a little preview. I think President Biden is planning on a major infrastructure initiative. We need that desperately in America. We need to look at what happened in Texas. We need to build out our energy grid. We need to have an energy grid. We don't really have one in the United States that's a smart grid that connects one part of the country to another. So there are great opportunities here, uh, huge opportunities for growth. And I think we're going to see international consortia grow as people find it convenient and and, uh, financially rewarding to combine efforts in order to do some R&D for one particular uh, technology or another. And more information about that live stream on CNBC.com. All right, still coming up, the streaming wars. Paramount jumping into an already crowded pool. We'll break down if it has what it takes to make a dent. But first, as we had to break, some of your other top stories. Billionaire Jorge Paulo Lemon is reportedly stepping down from the board of Kraft Heinz. According to Bloomberg, the company saying in a regulatory filing, Lamont decided to reduce his travel commitments and will not seek re-election. Adding the move was not the result of any disagreement with management or the board. And another setback for SpaceX after its Starship prototype rocket exploded after a successful landing and a high-altitude flight test. The company says the cause of that explosion is not immediately clear. And the Kings of Leon getting in on the growing frenzy over crypto collectibles. The band will release its new album, in the form of a $50 non-fungible token tomorrow, making the first band to do so. Worldwide Exchange will be back in a moment. And welcome back. 44 past the hour, a live look at Times Square. Not too far from the headquarters of Viacom CBS, the latest company, to dip its toe in these rising streaming wars, a bit of a rebrand, but we're going to get to that in just a second. So as I mentioned, today is the official launch of Paramount Plus. That's the rebrand of CBS All Access. It's a new streaming service technically, and it's a new home for brands like MTV, Nickelodeon, Comedy Central, CBS News, and much more. The stock is already a huge winner in 2021 with a more than 90% gain compared to the likes of industry titans Disney and Netflix, But does the new streaming home for Star Trek, SpongeBob and Survivor, do they have what it takes to stand out in an already crowded field? Joining me now is Axios media reporter Sarah Fisher. Hey, Sarah. Hey, good morning, Frank. So, Sarah, I I saw you have a new article coming out today. Really breaks this all down. But I got to ask for our viewers, what do you expect from Paramount Plus? It's kind of a rebrand of CBS All Access. Can it compete? And does it have anything like uh, Disney Plus's Mandalorian? It's a great question, Frank. Look, they don't have any sort of scripted series that's like Mandalorian, but what they do have is live sports. And that's going to be the key differentiator between Paramount Plus and some of its competitors, as you mentioned, Disney Plus, but also Peacock and Netflix, Amazon Prime Studios, etc. Of course, the crown jewel is the NFL on CBS. But in terms of fun dramas, new series that you might want to get hooked at, Look to a lot of reboots. They're going to have a new refreshed version of Frasier with Kelsey Grammer, as well as refreshed kid shows like our new Rugrats update, as well as iCarly. So, Sarah, I mean, 
Paramount Plus is going to offer live football. We're just talking about what Amazon is potentially going to pay to secure live football. So as you mentioned, it's the crown jewel. Also, some other iconic program, whether programming, whether you like it or not. Jersey Shore, that's pretty iconic. They're going to have that on there. Um, you also mentioned some Nickelodeon programming. So who's the target audience of this streaming service? And can they realistically take market share from a Disney Plus and from a Netflix? Yeah, great question. I think the target audience is families. You have something for everyone here. Your movie buffs are going to have over 3,000 new movies. They're going to have some new hits like Mission Impossible 2 coming to the series just after they launch in theaters, 45 days. You're going to have kids programming. As you mentioned, there's a new SpongeBob movie that's coming out exclusively to the platform. And then for sports lovers, there's going to be live sports. And it's not just the NFL, Frank. They have secured rights to new soccer tournaments in Europe. So there's going to be something for everyone. What this lacks, in my opinion, is mature programming. You have services like Hulu that have exclusive FX programming, shows like Breaking Bad, shows like Bob's Burgers. You have a lot of that going on. There's not going to be as much of that here, although to your point, there's going to be a lot of really strong reality. As a Jersey girl, I'm excited for the Jersey Shore, as well as all of MTV's other reality hits, Survivor, Big Brother, and so much more. Well, you know, you can take your phone when you gym tan, tan and laundry. And you can watch Jersey Shore. Uh, on a serious note, I think a lot of people are scratching their heads about some of the programming. So you mentioned they're bringing Frasier onto this platform, but that used to be an NBC show. They won't have Yellowstone, one of their critically acclaimed shows. They already sold that to Peacock. And they won't have the Chappelle show because he said he doesn't want his content on there. So what things do they have coming up? Do they have any other premium things like those three things coming up on the horizon that might draw viewers in? Yeah, that's a huge challenge, not just, by the way, for ViacomCBS, but for a lot of streamers that they wanted to pay down debt or to raise a little money. They sold off some of their prime inventory to other streamers, so they're not going to get some of that Yellowstone content on their service soon, although they are planning some new reboots of Yellowstone, some spinoffs. I think some of the other crown jewels are things that you're going to expect that are going to really lure people in are the temple programming from CBS and from Viacom that have developed major fan bases around the world. We're talking new Star Trek series. That's going to be a huge game changer for a lot of folks. As I mentioned earlier, Big Brother fans, they're going to have every season on there exclusively. So that's going to be the star programming on the show. The other thing that they've got, remember, Avatar is a Paramount Pictures program. And so because of that, they're planning a bunch of new Avatar series, both uh, for kids and for adults. That's going to be another big hit. But to your point, Frank, this is a really competitive streaming landscape. It's not going to be easy for them to take market share from Netflix, which has over 200 million subscribers worldwide, or from Disney Plus, which at this point has around roughly 100 million subscribers. They're going to have to be very competitive, hold on to those NFL rights, and continue to put out new great streaming series and films to make sure people subscribe and stay with them. Sarah, I'm personally excited about that Star Trek, the next generation spinoff. When you say Star Trek, you got to mention it's the next generation with John Luke Picard. It's a little nerdy, but we want to thank you for your uh, your time and your insight. We really appreciate it, Sarah. And you want to be sure to read Sarah's breakdown of Paramount Plus and what's at stake right now at Axios.com. All right. Still to come. If you are dazed and confused by this week's wild market swings, you're certainly not alone. We'll talk rising yields, text tumble and much more with City's Stephen Whiting. And if you haven't already subscribed to our podcast, you should just go ahead and do it. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, and other podcast apps. And Worldwide Exchange, we'll be right back.
All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Stocks are coming off a negative session as rising bond yields. They just once again rattle investors. The Nasdaq, which fell 2.7%, is on track for its third straight down week, the longest losing streak since September. But your next guest says rising yields are not necessarily a sign the bull market is coming to an end. Let's bring in Stephen Whiting, Global Chief Investment and Strategist at City Private Bank. Stephen, thanks for joining us. Good morning. So let's get into it. Uh, you put out some, some notes recently saying that volatility is going to keep going as long as we see these bond yields rise. And we may be on course for a correction, but that's not actually a bad thing. You got to explain that one. Well, the, the bad thing part is nobody wants corrections, but this is not the end of an expansion. This is not the risk that we faced in 2018 when the Federal Reserve uh, was tightening monetary policy with two different levers. Uh, This is the bond market just negotiating with the stock market to find a new equilibrium. You know, we value every asset relative to interest rates, the opportunity cost of taking less risk and still earning a return. The bond market, again, was very poorly priced for a big economic recovery. That recovery is being driven by vaccines, the end of COVID. Uh, It's going to be driven by another very large stimulus. But who will pay for that stimulus? Will the Federal Reserve raise the amount of its bond purchases even further? Probably not. So what happens? We've got to, again, use some real resources uh, to pay for a stimulus. Uh, The economy recovers. The yield curve steepens. All of this is, is very normal. But any asset that became overpriced for an extra low interest rate, for a crisis low interest rate, that's what's vulnerable to some correction. So obviously we're seeing these yields rise. In your mind, what does that signal to investors and what does it mean for the equity markets? And even longer term, what does it mean for the bond markets? I think a lot of people are watching that 10 year, especially people who are still thinking about refinancing their homes. Well, at this level, we're not in any you know, danger of uh, creating some big valuation problem for equities. We do have to live at the moment with the greater uncertainty about the range of interest rates. Now, how do we discount these cash flows uh, when implied volatility, when the possible range for the bond market is uncertain, we create greater uncertainty in other asset classes and every other asset class. But let's just be clear here. The Fed is going to be on zero through next year. Uh, we have yield curve steepening in every early economic recovery. That's going back even long before the 40-year track record uh, that we've uh, had of falling bond yields during most cycles. And it's really just the signal, the same underlying symptom of a recovering economy is going to have some upward interest rate pressures. It's going to bring up inflation expectations to some degree. Now, the extra wrinkle on this is borrowing a lot more money for a stimulus. That will be spent in the economy. That'll be spent. It'll pad corporate revenues. Uh, So all of this is generally good for stocks and negative for bonds. But the bond market is still going to have a toll. So coming into this year in our outlook, we expected double digit earnings gains and single digit returns for stocks because of rising interest rate pressures at the long end of the bond market. Seems to be what we're going to get. The reason to just stick through this is that the coming year we're still expecting in 2022 uh, 12 to 15 percent EPS growth. So, Stephen, you're saying that these rising bond yields are a signal that the world's biggest economy is ready to get rolling. But you also say you're overweight on Latin America and emerging markets. So how do you justify both things at the same time if this economy is ready to roll? Well, it's about what happens next. Right. Latin America is extremely beaten down relative to other cyclical uh, trades that we've done. Uh, For example, last April, we added an overweight to small cap U.S. stocks. 
They rallied up 90%. We've trimmed some. Still think that there will be returns. Latin America rebounded, but it's far less complete. If you take a look at the COVID shock, uh, it is just far more profound and lasting. They're going to be later with vaccines. So do you want to think about 2022 with a part of your portfolio? Not what's performing well now, but what still has the capacity to perform well. Brazil's currency, for example, you know, is down 20% versus the U.S. dollar simply because of COVID. And then there are other reasons, but it's down more than that. So these are the reasons why, uh, again, you have to position a portfolio for what's next. Last year, uh, as we hit those crisis lows, it was time again to position for a recovery. And there are still some areas uh, of recovery, of rebound, that have not been priced in yet. All right, Stephen Whiting, we appreciate the insight. Thanks for being here. And that does, us for, does it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. Squawk Box is up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.